0: Coming up on Technation, if you thought the annual Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas was all about gadgets, you'd be wrong. Well, right and wrong, science and technology come together to create cutting-edge solutions to our health needs today and tomorrow. And today's show is all about pain. There's a problem when you don't feel pain, as is the case for millions of diabetics who don't realize the damage they're doing to their feet before it's too late. And then there are those with chronic pain, living months, years, even decades with unrelenting pain. We'll talk about technology to address both on this week's Tech Nation.
1: Let's take five, with Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes.
0: It's really quiet on planes now, aside from the constant drone of the airplane, that is. What I mean is that passengers are occupied. Occupied as in not restless, not wondering when this flight will be over, not getting up to stand around and stretch their legs, not going to the bathroom just for something to do. And to what do we owe this occupied quality? Electronics, obviously. It's not really social media. You pretty much have to pay for the Internet on airplanes these days. And even if it's free, half the time it's down for one reason or another. But at least those messy newspapers have become pretty rare. For years, you brought your morning paper with you to the airport. But remember when you opened it up? It's wider than a normal airline seat. So you jerry-rig it around to read just one article or another. And then you start discarding sections. You root around for a pen to do the crossword. And it's all a bit irritating for everyone around you. Who among us can return newspapers to exactly the same footprint and thickness they started with? And let's not talk about those folks who bring on board the Sunday edition. Even with the internet, they tell you that you can't download video. So passengers tend to download their entertainment before they get on the plane. The first time you see the person next to you watching a big screen movie on the tiny screen of a smartphone does make you wonder. But it's the screens, in fact, that are the hot commodity. My cross-country flight just yesterday announced there were plenty of free movies and TV shows to see. Just have their app downloaded on your portable device and log on. Do you need a headset or actually a screen? Well, tough luck. BYOE or rather bring your own electronics is the order of the day. And why not? People who fly regularly are little self-contained consumer electronic stores. I myself had three choices of screens right on my person. So why should the airline buy one for me? It can break, become obsolete, or both. Look, it's not personal. It's just smart business. What really got me to thinking about all this was an elderly gentleman sitting one row away. I can only guess his age, but it looked advanced to me, and I figured he was beyond any techie entertainments. He sat quietly as the plane was loading and remained that way as we took off. I kept wondering what he was going to do to occupy himself all the way across the country. Just as the thought flashed across my mind, he pulled out a tablet and started reading. There were big letters on the screen, and he swiped every so often to turn the page. Was it a book he was reading? I looked over again, and he was assembling an electronic jigsaw puzzle on his tablet, then playing a card game, back to the book, then a video of some sort, then a nap. Finally, he was doing something I had predicted— But then he was back to the jigsaw puzzle, and at that point, I spoke sternly to myself and ordered myself to stop looking. Humans have always done things to pass the time, since there was a need to pass the time. On long train trips, on long car rides, this is really no different. Or is it? I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Today on Tech Nation, we're talking about pain, first for the millions of diabetics who no longer feel pain in their feet and inadvertently go on to injure themselves seriously. And then for people who suffer from chronic pain, that would be constant daily pain without relief. In both cases, the science leads to the technology at the CES convention in Las Vegas, Nevada. Dr. David Armstrong is a professor of surgery at the Keck School of Medicine at USC, the University of Southern California, and he's a podiatric surgeon. Davide Vigano is CEO of Sensoria. Today we are talking about the health challenge we don't often hear about, the long-term effect of diabetes on the feet. I asked Dr. Armstrong, how many diabetics are there? And how many have problems with their feet?
2: Right, Maura. So this is like, you know, I think everyone knows a little bit about diabetes. They might have a family member with diabetes or maybe know someone with diabetes. But, you know, this is the biggest problem that no one's really talking about because there are in the United States about 31 million people now with diabetes, about 400 to 425 million uh, around the world. Of those people, about half of them will develop what's called neuropathy, or they will lose what one of my mentors used to call the, the gift of pain to where they could literally wear a hole in their foot. Like we you can't a-
0: tens- sense your foot.
2: Right. And, and this is something that is so easy to talk about on the radio or just to talk about between doctor and patient or between two people. But until you've actually seen it or experienced it, it's really extraordinary um, because – You know, these things that you think are very, very simple, uh, like a little blister uh, or a little black spot on your foot or a little red thing.
0: Or you sit down because your feet hurt. Right. They don't hurt.
2: It doesn't. And so you start, you don't treat it the same way. And we're conditioned as human beings to respond to symptoms, to pain, right? My shoulder hurts. I need to go see a shoulder doctor. My foot hurts. My back hurts. Oop. My chest is hurting. I better go see that heart doctor. But what if you don't have a symptom? And that's what makes this problem with diabetes so sinister. So, again, half of folks with diabetes are going to develop that loss of feeling. When that happens, they can wear a hole in their foot. uh, And that hole, if you will, is called a diabetic foot ulcer or a diabetic foot wound. It affects uh, about uh, a third now. A third. One third. uh, Ultimately, so it is an extremely common problem now. It's common. It's complicated and it is costly.
0: Now, let me ask you this. Uh, They come to you at this point. They do. And where on their feet are the problems?
2: They are where we would normally get problems. Like if we would normally develop blisters, sometimes it's on our toe or it's on the bottom of the foot. But it's really from uh, just constant repetitive stress on something that would normally, if it were you, if it were me, if it were them before they developed the neuropathy, they would just change the way they walked a little bit, or they would limp a little, or they would come in to see... uh, would say,
0: I need new shoes. Right. And
2: they would self-treat. But without that, our patients uh, will develop these wounds, and they just uh, keep getting deeper. They, uh, in many cases, can go down to the bone. uh, And uh, then about half of these wounds get infected, Uh, Once that happens, about one in five of those infections leads to some kind of amputation. And that's why there is an amputation every 20 seconds around the world. That's the most conservative number. And when someone gets an amputation, morbidity, mortality is worse than all but the worst cancers. About half of people uh, are dead in five years after uh, that amputation. And it's not because they develop another uh, wound or something like that, or an infection, they tend to die from strokes and heart attacks because this is the thing that lays them up. It takes them from being active and productive and just lays them up. And, and and it's just such a horrible problem because, first of all, it doesn't have to be. Second of all, it's just silent and sinister. And there are so many terrible problems that knock people down that are active in their prime and it makes a loud you know, kind of bang, as it were, right? And this doesn't. So the big idea is to try to stop these problems. And that's kind of the whole enchilada. The other thing that affects a lot of people in diabetes is peripheral artery disease, or PAD. You've heard of coronary artery disease. Well, there's peripheral artery disease. The big, long blood vessels that go down to the legs often get clogged. And so it's really uh, very, very important to keep an eye on that. And that's why it's so important to have vascular surgery. Uh, involved in this
0: as well from a long-standing uh, time point and your primary care doctor involved. Okay, so let me get this straight. The problem that you're going to have with your feet is, first of all, you're not going to feel the pain that you're having a problem down there, so you just keep going. Yeah, Yeah, You don't do that. The other part that makes the feet at risk is that there's less blood flow. And the less blood flow, the less healing, the less everything down there. So this is what contributes to the, all of those problems.
2: You have to deal, we call it a toe and flow problem. We have to deal with the toe and you have to deal with the flow. And so that's the, the big idea. And there's a very often, if you will, plumbing problems down there too. Or, and so that's why having uh, vascular surgery and, uh, and our other colleagues in vascular medicine involved uh, from an early age.
0: Now, first of all, how do we sense it and prevent it?
2: Well, Up until this point, for the longest time, really since diabetes has become a chronic problem, since uh, you had uh, Jocelyn start using insulin back in the early 30s, we've seen just treating uh, uh, this problem in a reactive way. Someone develops a wound, we have to react to it, and that reaction often is where we have to urgently take them to surgery to keep their leg on, or sometimes even to keep them alive in really, really bad infections. What we have now, where we have the merger of super cool kind of consumer electronics and medical devices merging now, is we can, for once, I think in my little career, I could see we could get out in front of these things now. And it's just such an exciting time. And that's where Davide comes in. That's at. where Davide comes in. <laughs> Davide Vigana, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Davide. You show these beautiful Italian socks to me. They are just black and elegant. And it reminds me of when you go to, on the airlines, they frequently will give you a pair of socks. You know, if you're in the more expensive seats, you got lucky, got there. And they have little uh, plastic things, rubbery things on the bottom so you won't slip. You know, a slip and fall would be very bad there. And so here are these elegant Italian socks, but there's so much more than that.
3: What are they? That's right. I think, you know, that the challenge is, is that no one wants to wear something that is perceived as a stigma, right? We communicate with our words. We communicate with what we wear. We all wake up in the morning, take a shower, most of us, and we put our clothes on. And what we wear communicates, in part, who we are. Uh, we know that people don't want to wear bulky and uh, medical devices that are perceived as a stigma. We run a focus group with... Uh, Many, 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 many patients, and quite a few of them refer to their medical devices. In that case, was a fault detection device as the death button. Right? I don't want to be seen wearing one. So we think that medical technology should be woven and needed into whatever we wear. Should disappear to the human eye. To into whatever we want to wear. So it should be us, the geeks, to make the effort together with the designers to make the technology disappear to the human eye. Enough plastic, enough steel, which is, you know, bound to our wrist. We wear socks, we wear shoes, we wear T-shirts. We are going to put textile sensors into each one of those garments uh, so that we can detect and replace, in some cases, the so incredibly useful pain sensation in this case that, you know, Diabetic patients suffering from peripheral neuropathy don't feel so.
0: So, when I look on the bottom of this elegant sock here, this elegant Italian sock, it has two square patches basically where the ball of your foot would land, and then these. Lovely little squiggly lines up until about the heel, and there's another little patch there, and it's all very soft, rubbery. You kind of want to put them on because they <laughs> I bet that feels good. You know? Okay, so this they is, do feel this is the medical yeah, but, device you're yeah. talking about.
2: But, but is it, isn't that the game changer? You're, you're really picking up on, on this <laughs> immediately because this is when we start to see medical devices that any of us, doctors, nurses, or just engineers will want to wear. That's when the game has changed, and and this is what's happening now, and it's been creeping up on us, uh, maybe for the last decade or so. But it's
0: just I just became a believer. <laughs> this is like you would I could show this to a million people with Oh, this is really cool, you know. And yeah. it's like, what do you mean it's a medical device? What do you mean it communicates with my iPhone or my you right. know whatever I've gotten here? So anyway, now, what, what do these uh, little patches do? This is so a black. Patches... I tell you, people that that are listening, this is black on black. So mm, yeah. it's all very—it's
2: kind of the Johnny Cash of consumer totally, electronics. Yeah, it's
3: very totally. subdued, right? Very so, subdued. Yeah. So we sleet want we, it doesn't have to be part of the conversation, right? I'm wearing something that is providing with me with detailed information about my health or my fitness. Uh, those patches are actually textile pressure sensors that we developed, so they're 100% textile, but they behave like a pressure sensor. Um, so they're impossible to detect. They're very comfortable. They're washable. Um, and, uh, you have,
0: what do they send then to your, you've got, so you've got them on both feet, obviously. And it, what do they send it, up to your device?
3: So if I'm uh, a, a consumer, uh, I could actually wear them just for a, to, to go for a run, And it provides with my cadence, with my heel striking technique, forefoot striking technique. Mm -hmm. So we have thousands of people using them right now in running, as an example, distance runners. But if I'm a diabetic patient, I want to make sure that I get information about the fact that I potentially could be wearing one of these socks to prevent a foot ulcer to happen In that location, because that that location had the scratch, as an example, right? So, I want to make sure that we maximize the circulation, blood circulation in that area, so that scratch or blister heals correctly. And in a diabetic patient, that's a challenge, right? What would
0: we see? What would we see in terms of the input from these socks that would tell us there was something wrong?
2: That's a great question. So, I think what you will see with these things and these socks are you'd see consistently high pressures uh, in an area. Uh, Another technology that we've worked with that I know that Davide has worked with as well because we've worked on it together um, is skin temperature. And you will see uh, a wound will heat up before it breaks down. So we might see if you have a high pressure area, right, you will get inflammation. Look, if you want to sound smart and you're talking about and who doesn't, by the way, FYI, and you're talking about any chronic disease, just mutter inflammation under your breath. And you'll be right, uh, but 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 these folks will develop inflammation that's uncontrolled. That's and there's an asymmetry between like right and left, or even between one toe and another. And that they all know. yes, and then you can dose your activity by checking your skin temperature and your pressure, just like you dose your say insulin by so checking this is your an glucose early
0: warning system. It's
2: like exactly. It it's it's it is in a in a way like an ECG for your for your foot or it's a, or it's like a glucose meter for your yeah. foot in a way.
0: Well, you, you off as a mother, you you're used to your kids fall down, they show you things that, and the first thing is you put your right hand over. It's like do I feel heat? And then you know is there really an injury here or are we just going to put a Band-Aid on it even though it doesn't need it? <laughs> That's right. But oh, you got a Band-Aid. You
3: know? Yeah, and when that when that injury happens on a diabetic foot, it's, it's a real problem, right? People tend to underestimate and we don't talk, I don't think, nearly enough about the challenges that a diabetic... People suffering right. from diabetes have when that happens and so
0: when that happens how does the how does the foot react as opposed to one that has the blood flow and has the pain sense uh,
2: another great question the, these this reacts um, as you might expect it to react it, you you will get initially a blister uh, that blister if it were you or if it were me we'd be hurting so much just automatically we would change the way we walk we'd kind of limp on it or something but these Folks, because they've lost the gift of pain, they don't limp through it. They just walk through it. So this gets uh, more and more deep. And you see how you're having that reaction right now—that yeah. you're, 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 you're pursing your lips because you're imagining it hurting. Yeah. They, they don't have that, so they, so they'll keep walking through that. Um, and then uh, it will get deeper. It will uh, become like a full thickness wound. It will then, in many cases, get colonized and, and infected. Uh, and that's when it could lead to things and these horrible horrible scary things like you've heard about gangrene and 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 sometimes what's called necrotizing fasciitis and and infections that become real surgical it systemic
0: eventually oh, and could kill you
2: that, right and people say their feet are killing them here their feet are, are killing,
0: killing them. them yeah yeah that that's fascinating and so at that point then you come in you perform surgery uh, or we get to the to a certain point like yeah. okay we really need these wounds to heal yes and you show up with this super nifty smart bit switzerland Après ski boot. <laughs> oh, wow, this is, this is so cosmopolitan. It is. I oh was like, "Wow, this is." Real. I thought you were bringing me. You're medical. from Alto Adige,
2: aren't you? Yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I thought medical. you were San bringing me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, cannot, oh. I cannot endorse. I am a journalist, well, but I right. can tell what I can tell what an Italian high-end ski resort ski boot looks like. You right. know. And here is the ski boot. What is this?
2: Uh, yeah, the device that we have here is just really cool because um, we know that. Um, it's not what you put on these wounds that heals them, although there are many different technologies that we have that can speed healing. It's what you take off, and you need to take off uh, the pressure, uh, uh, and that's what we talk about with offloading. You also need to surgically treat these wounds by cleaning them up and sometimes getting rid of the very limb-threading infection and then reconstructing them. But the first thing is to take off the, the pressure, and that's where uh, this next-generation... Um, smart boot comes into play because it has a modular design now that's really cool but then on now top, what
0: do you mean by a modular design
2: it's where you, you the patient or the patient's caregiver nurse or a doctor can change uh, in a very very simple way uh, the little areas that can be protected um, in this device in one device they don't have to do a lot of um, they don't have to do a lot of very expensive customizations, they can do it with the insole itself. The insole looks like a jigsaw puzzle. It, it, Several I,
0: layer jigsaw puzzle yeah. of different densities. And, right. And you can interchange them right. and, and uh, we
2: call it multi-laminar and multi durometer. <laughs> uh, how's that? I can charge <laughs> I more no if one. I say that, right? Yeah. I, don't know, but, I won't charge uh, but, you anything. Uh, so, but so, at
0: anything anyway, the, the, the point is is that it just it comes apart and you right. and you're able to literally and it's connected like a jigsaw puzzle. Right. And and so you can form what needs soft what needs and there's
2: there's some things that can be heat molded as well, which are really elegant as well. And you and and again, you keyed on the key thing is that it's it really is it's these are nice to look at uh, as opposed. It doesn't look uh, as much like a medical device. It doesn't look like oh my goodness, I'm injured. Although clearly you are if you're wearing this, but it's just a lot kinder uh, and gentler. Now, on top of all of that um, is and and one of the real advantages and the real innovations now is the uh, the smarts attached to it. Now there is a next generation a magnetometer and gyroscope slash accelerometer on it that can uh, detect where it is in space. And, if, and even more importantly, if it's being worn or if it's not, because remember, Ooh, yeah, yeah. Gotta have it on. Right. <laughs> uh, it's not going to work if it's not on. So about 15, 20 years ago, In the very early days of what are now called wearables, we did uh, research and uh, one of the more well-known studies we did in that kind of line of work was where we took back then wearable devices, which were like $5,000 a piece. Now, many of them are almost like free. And we put them on the patient's waist. And then we put another one on these removable cast boots that we call the removable cast walkers. And what we found was astonishing. It was much worse than we thought. We found that our patient's these are like our family. We're only wearing these devices for about 28% of the total activity they took in a day. Yeah. So it was way worse than we thought. And these, th- this is not something sinister. The patients are not trying to be me or trying to fool you. It's just that th- there's a big, clunky, ugly device on them.
0: And And not very comfortable. No. There's some very interesting structures on this, this rubbery honeycomb that gives you strength, but also gives. It's like it's really very interesting from a material standpoint. Yeah, it really is. I
3: mean, and that's where the Italian design and uh, footwear innovation, excellence comes into place. Our friends at Optima, Molitor, in uh, the Marche region, beautiful region in, in, uh, in Italy, the same region that actually develops Todd's shoes, right? The oh, Armani yes. shoes. I didn't right? even know that. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That's true, So, wow. so we partnered with uh, um, Franco Salvatelli and the Salvatelli family in the Marche region to develop the Motus Smart. Motus means movement, right? Uh, it is incredible, Dr. David Armstrong, that in 2019... The gold standard for, for you guys is still the total contact cast. Yeah. We're still putting – because we don't want them to take off the offloading, pressure offloading devices, we still put people in a full contact cast. Now, it's expensive. It's heavy. Nobody likes –
0: Uncomfortable.
3: Yeah, right. uncomfortable, right? So we developed a – with the Moto smart. we developed a system that is good-looking, light, easy to put on. Affordable, right? So that, that is what makes it unique. And yes, we provide the patient and the clinician with the data in terms of, is the patient wearing it? So it's Is going it to not, your phone. It, it's going to the patient's phone it, and it, to it, the clinician dashboard. Correct.
2: Absolutely. Importantly, it's going to the patient. It's going to his or her phone. It's going to his or her watch. We now have a, a, a watch prototype that's so cool now because you can just uh, – look. At, do you have that there? Oh, yeah. It's so cool. Uh, I'm, I'm sure, I'm I'm sure
3: people on the radio will see yeah. too. Oh, I know they can. I know they, <laughs> they will. Yeah. I know it's Italian. Yeah. <laughs> it will be
0: fine.
2: Oh, yeah. Look at that. So so for
3: older patients that don't have a smartphone, we think that so we give the patient the choice. Well, I have to tell
0: you, you have the world's best message that I've ever seen. If you get to a certain point, it says to you, you are walking too much. Sit down now. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. How's yeah. that for easy? Yeah. Uh, that's a very like straight, this. That's a this straight is done. very good. Yeah. As my engineer says, it's the unfit bit. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, right. The
3: unfit yeah. bit. people to, are not fit, unfortunately, and yes. we want to make them and, fit again. But they right? don't so know it, it, not it, to stop walking. Exactly.
0: They don't know not to put their f- foot up. They don't know that, and yet they have to do as much as they can
2: Absolutely. to so recover. This is what is so complicated, but this has to be made simple because you, you want to get up, you want to get moving, just move, right? And that is absolutely true. But for some people, especially if you have a big, wide-open wound on your foot and you can't feel it, too much movement can be harmful, particularly if it's unprotected. Now, if we get them up in this device and moving around, then you know they can move around and do their thing. And in many cases, they can have a real active uh, life even while they're healing a limb-threatening wound. But giving... The patient, giving him or her uh, that information, it it just is completely flipping the script and it's totally uh, changing how we interact with our patients uh, from the ground up, really, you know.
0: I've been speaking with podiatric surgeon Dr. David Armstrong and Davide Vigano, CEO of Sensorio. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, chronic pain, daily experiences of pain over months and even years. I'll speak with Dr. Shai Gozani, the president and CEO of Neurometrics, about their approach. Stay with us. i You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with podiatric surgeon Dr. David Armstrong and Davide Vigano, CEO of Sensoria. I know that you recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine an analysis of recovering from these wounds and this compared yeah. to the how much it costs for other diseases. Yeah. What
2: What did you find? Well, a couple of things. First, well, this problem right now. Um, when people develop a wound, uh, and then when they certainly when they develop an amputation, uh, about half of people will be dead uh, in five years after they develop an amputation, and this is worse than all but the worst cancers, uh, up to actually eighty percent in some cases, depending on other problems they have. Um, but the cost uh, of this problem is also very similar to to cancer. The direct costs associated with taking care of the the, the leg and foot and diabetes is now more expensive uh, than the five most expensive cancers in the United States. And there are plenty of people right now on air talking about breast cancer and colon cancer and skin cancer and lung cancer and you know and they should be. God knows. But I can guarantee you that the three of us right now just hanging out here, we are the only, we happy few are the only folks talking about feet in diabetes and you want to talk about a a, a big problem that no one's talking about. So that's uh some of the data from that New England Journal piece. In addition to that, when people are healed, maybe they're not healed. Uh, because uh, once they're healed, about 40, 40 percent will develop another wound uh, in a year, about two-thirds in three years, about three-quarters in five years. So uh, recurrence uh, is not common. It's it's likely. So again, maybe we have to flip the script. And if these patients are healed, maybe they're not healed. And if the foot in diabetes is maybe a little bit like cancer, and obviously it's terrible to compare one horrible thing to another, but if we did that, then maybe when people are healed, they're not healed. Maybe they are in remission.
0: If and we so, think about it that right, way. Right.
2: And so we use that term remission now, and we sort of coined that some years ago. and And so when we talk to our patient we say, you know, uh, Mr. Smith, uh, Ms. Gonzalez, thank God you're healed. But you know what? This is like cancer. And you, sh- you say cancer and you watch them kind of stiffen up a little. Um, and, and, and then you watch that and then you say, but, okay, listen, here's, there is, it's very likely that you're going to get another sore in our long life together. But you know what we're going to do? But, but you know what we're going to try to do? You're in remission now, just like with cancer, and we're going to try to keep you in remission, and we're going to try to make those, that wound as minor and as short-lived as possible. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to get you into some smart shoes, some smart socks. You were already in that smart boot to heal this, uh, and we're going to be dosing this activity, and we're going to be working together uh, on this, and then you start to see them kind of lighten up a little bit. And this is now something that we see more and more in our clinic. Um, as we're integrating a lot of this, not only in research projects, but in everyday life. And it's just really gratifying.
0: We but, c- we can work on this and know ahead of time. We can be on top of it.
2: Yes. And because, you know, in the bigger sense, we're talking about diabetes and we're talking about a complication from diabetes, but what we're really talking about are these, you know, if you will, these diseases of decay, right? And... Uh, uh, and uh, we're we're many more people now are dying of these non-communicable diseases than from all the horrible plagues in the world combined. And what we have to start to do, whether we're talking about diabetes or cancer or cardiovascular disease or lung disease, any of these so- so-called NCDs or non-communicable diseases, is we have to try to, if you will, to delay decay, right? And these gadgets are not just gadgets they are things that are agents if you will that can help us do that a little bit nicer in a nicer way because they're they're patient facing it's not some fancy thing behind some screen that only a doctor uh, or a nurse have and it's not some secret knowledge uh,
3: yeah and, and that's it, the problem because in the US the average you know primary care physician i just read uh, has just 8 minutes yeah. on average to yeah. actually see a patient so I think is both patient and clinicians, right, so how do we make it easier and less costly to have this journey right because if if the patient is in remission, how do we let not just the patient know but the circle of care and the clinician know hmm there is some you should really probably see this patient again, right, so we should help technology should help highlight the high priority patients I think. You know, doctors now call it personalized medicine. At the end of the day, right? right? So after surgery, I would assume there are patients that you want to follow more, and you probably want to tweak the ranges of pressure for each specific area and so forth. I mean, there, is, there is no reason why we shouldn't be able to do that right now, right? We can do that right now through cloud computing without the without them visiting, without right, yeah, without even office. seeing the That's <laughs> right.
2: And so and so we will have. So so we have. And you know, we've we've talked about the potential value of AI and 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 uh, um, actual you know smart algorithms that are identifying all these data um, and doing uh, really good quality signal processing
0: and identifying these things. These socks, you know, were really used by runners. Good design is good design. They work for everyone. I'm reminded when in the United States, they first started saying curb cats. We used to just step off the curb and then they made these things. You had to have it. So, you know disabled people whoever they were could come up and down without having to step well then you know suddenly everybody with a stroller loved it everybody with a bike loved it everybody with had to pull their their um their luggage in it's like that's the way it should have been designed to begin with so as design in the total world the healthy world melds with design in the medical device world now we're talking about what really works for exactly,
2: you? Right. Now you're talking, yeah. Amara, And Absolutely. Yeah, from
3: a technology standpoint, there are really three things that are happening, right? Beyond the design, now we have access to these three things that are crucial to actually implement this type of solutions. Number one is non-traditional sensing technology. The textile pressure sensor that we talked about before did not exist before. We will see textile temperature sensors. We will see textile, sweat composition sensors come into market, right? right. That's the, the first thing. I call them non-traditional sensing technology. The second thing is microelectronics are becoming so small and so powerful that will disappear to the human eye at some point. And so inexpensive. And, number, and so inexpensive. So we, you can put it in, you know, blood vessels, right? So at this right. point, right? So And number three, and even probably even more importantly, we have access to data through cloud computing that allows us to enable this type of algorithm creations and constant monitoring in a very cheap, affordable, and pervasive way, which We never had before, right? So these three things combined with great design, I think, can change the medical device industry, right? And consumer electronics can can help us with that. And the Motosmart is just one example of that.
0: Well, thank you so much, gentlemen. I hope you'll come back and see us again. Oh, are you kidding? (laughs) Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for having me. Bring me all this Italian stuff.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) It was fun.
0: Podiatric surgeon Dr. David Armstrong is a professor of surgery at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. Davide Vigano is the CEO of Sensoria. More information is available at sensoriahealth.com. For those of us who can feel pain, and that would be anywhere on our bodies, it may unfortunately be daily chronic pain. Scientific research helps us understand chronic pain and gives us directions on how to treat it. Dr. Shai Kozani is the president and CEO of Neurometrics. Well, Shai, welcome back to Tech Nation.
4: Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
0: And you're still in the pain business. Tell we us are. about pain in the United States. How many people are suffering and, and what are they doing about it?
4: Yeah, so um, since we last talked, it hasn't gotten any better. Uh, the, the current numbers are that there are about 100 million people in the United States with chronic pain. The country is spending about $600 billion a year, both in direct and indirect costs, There are more people with chronic pain, and there's more money being spent on chronic pain than diabetes, cancer, and heart disease combined. So it's really one of the most significant issues that the country is facing. And as of course, with the aging population, it's only going to get worse. Uh, sort of superimposed on that, we also have the opioid crisis, which has really uh, accelerated here in the last several years. Or at least the awareness of it has accelerated. And that's really had a pretty significant impact on the chronic pain community in a variety of ways. What
0: qualifies
4: as chronic pain? So the technical definition of chronic pain is pain most days for longer than 90 days. So three months. Every so, day. More most most days, so the majority of days you feel pain for longer than three months. So so that this is to distinguish it from something like an acute pain. Maybe if you had an injury or post surgical pain or something. along you lines. and you exactly,
0: and yeah, you, you, you can feel it for a week or something like that.
4: Precisely. So this is and. and that that's sort of the minimal definition. Most people with chronic pain have had pain for for you know much longer than that, years and, and even decades. So it's really something that becomes ingrained in their life.
0: Now, what are we talking about here? Is it that your knee hurts every day, or your, what? Describe this for us.
4: You know, there are as many forms of chronic pain as there are, are people with chronic pain. It, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of, and I think it's one of the challenges, it, it defies simple, expa- simple explanation. So, you know, in, in terms of the, the typical categories of chronic pain, they, they go by you know, low back pain. Arthritic I was, pain.
0: well As soon as I asked the question, I thought all the low back pain people are going to be shouting. You know about low back pain, right?
4: Exactly. So that's that's the most common. Low back pain and arthritis are the two most common forms of of, of, of chronic pain, and of course, both increase with age. And then you have nerve t- nerve pain, so from diabetes, from people who've had chemotherapy, uh, from uh, shingles. Um, you have cent- sort of what 's called central pain and multiple sclerosis fibromyalgia conditions like that, and then there 's a lot of uh, sort of ill defined pain syndromes that are are hard to put diagnoses on in fact, fibromyalgia for many years was considered a sort of a psychosomatic condition and it 's only recently that it 's actually been been clearly defined as a as a chronic pain condition so What's, what's really most important about chronic pain is, is not necessarily the label, the disease that's put onto it, but the expression of, of the pain. So how are, how are people feeling pain? Is it Are they feeling pain every day? Are they feeling pain at night, in the morning? What time of the day? Um, what, is, uh, what does it do to their life? Are, is it affecting their ability to be active? Does it affect their sleep? Does it affect their relations? Does it affect their ability to work? Are they on disability? What what I think there's a trend now towards thinking more about pain in terms of its impact than its under, than its underlying cause because there are more the the, uh, the causes are varied the manifestations are more common than than the underlying conditions.
0: One of your degrees, your PhD, is in neurobiology. Uh, if you are suffering from chronic pain, does your brain begin to numb it out? How does your brain interact with that chronic pain?
4: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And, and th- I think that's something that is really emerging now in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years as very, very important. Uh, you said something interesting. You said, does it numb it out? Um, if you were only so lucky, it actually does the opposite. It amplifies the pain. And in fact, um, and, and the the term for that is called central sensitization. So central meaning the central nervous system and sensitization meaning you're sensitized to the pain. And, you know we 've all had this experience if you get a burn, you know how when you subsequently when you touch you know the touch of the area feels very even just touching it a normal normal touch feels very painful that you 've now sensitized your you're, you're sensitized to uh, in that area such that a normal stimulus that would be innocuous now feels like pain. That's what happens in chronic pain. The brain, over time, because of this kind of constant flow of pain signals into the brain, instead of numbing it out, it does the opposite. It maladapts and actually starts to amplify the pain such that over time, the pain becomes locked in in the brain. And in fact, the original insult, inflammation or injury or whatever whatever the original instigating problem was, may have actually somewhat abated. But the pain can be just as bad because now you're perceiving it in your brain. In even normal stimuli or even the absence of stimuli, you can perceive pain. And a good example of this is fibromyalgia. It's a devastating condition. And no, describe
0: th- it for people. Not well, so
4: fibromyalgia does. is, is it's really a constellation of, of, of symptoms. It, it's, um, it, it involves pain, widespread pain. So it's, it's pain in multiple locations all over the body. Fatigue, um, muscle and joint discomfort, um, often depression, sleep problems. Uh, often associated with post traumatic stress disorder so there's a big psychological component to it but there's nothing um, there's nothing that you can point to in terms of a physical injury that led to fibromyalgia yet p- people with fibromyalgia and it's sort of 80 90% women versus men have experienced pain all over their body but there's nothing there's no insult that led to that it's the the brain the way the brain processes pain signals and normal sensory signals has changed such that um, what what should be normal perceptions are now perceived as pain. But yet to the person suffering from that, it's pain. Because pain at the end if of the you day, you feel is, it, it's pain. It's pain. It's it's it's, there, it's it's just as bad as if you broke your leg. In fact, it's worse because it's all over the body. So this concept of central sensitization is really important. and It's now being recognized that low back pain and osteoarthritis and conditions like fibromyalgia and nerve pain, they all have a major CNS component to the point where you almost have to think of chronic pain as a brain disorder or a brain disease, not just a f- sort of a peripheral or ex- problem in the extremities, but actually a problem in the brain. And that leads to different treatments.
0: Now, when you said CNS, central nervous system, that all leads to the brain, but that's not part of the brain, is
4: it? No. So the, the, the term central nervous system refers to the brain and the spinal cord. Okay. So, so it is
0: included in that. Yes. Whole... The brain,
4: the brain, you know, these are, it's kind of a colloquial term. So CNS is a medical term, meaning, you know, the spinal cord and the brain and everything in between. The peripheral nervous system are your nerves, you know, that what you, you know, that in your muscles, those are kind of the, per, that's the peripheral part of the nervous system. Then you have the central nervous system.
0: Now you undertook uh, a study, to study this in the United States. What did you study?
4: So we were asking um, uh, an interesting question, I think, which is um, there's these two crises in the United States. You have the chronic pain crises and you have the opioid crisis. And they're often conflated. They're often thought of somehow being related and there's clearly overlap. But the question we were interested in is how does the opioid crisis affect the people with chronic pain? But the question was in the reaction of... um, the medical community and government, um, both state and federal to the opioid crisis has been to do what governments often do in medical systems, react in a rather dramatic way. So the pendulum has swung completely the opposite direction to where now it's very hard to get opioids. And even people who need opioids, which does include many people with chronic pain, at least in a, in a more controlled way, they can't even get them anymore. So we were interested, what, uh, what, has, what, what is the reaction of the chronic pain community and how has this opioid crisis and reaction to it affected them? And what we found is it's, it's really pretty dramatic. So we found that that because of the opioid crisis, um, most people with chronic pain can't get opioids anymore. Um, to the extent that they are using opioids, they won't tell anybody. They're not communicating with their doctors uh, about it they 're actually lying about opioid use because of the stigma associated with it, and they 're also finding that doctors are not really providing them with alternatives to opioids. so what we see is that because of this um, understandable uh, reaction to opioids, because of what it 's doing to communities and 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 many people it 's left people with chronic pain on, out on their own, and now you 've got people in chronic pain who can 't get adequate pain relief. 90% of people with chronic pain, as a result, they're looking for alternatives. You know, what we learned is, you know, it's really affected their lives. But the positive outcome of this is they're ready and willing and doing um, and a lot of research to find alternatives and open to those.
0: Now, you were here several years ago. You, we talked about your first product, Quell, and now we're up to Quell 2.0. Remind us, what was Quell and what's now Quell 2.0? What's the difference?
4: Well, it's one of those rare situations where the, the sequel is better than the original movie, right? <laughs> Let's um, hope that continues <laughs> for
0: Neurometrics.
4: <laughs> um, not true for most movies, but I, I think it might be true here. So, um, you know, background on, on Quell. So Quell is a, is a, is a neural stimulator. It's a wearable neurostimulator. So what that means is it stimulates your nerves, your peripheral nerves. So in this case, it's, placed, it's a device that's placed on your upper calf. Um, nothing magical about that. It's just a place where there's a lot of nerves. It stimulates those nerves. and it feels like a kind of a strong vibration. That strong stimulus, which goes on for an hour and then off for an hour as long as you wear it, continuously sort of cycles in that fashion, will trigger your brain, um, your, the pain centers in your brain to uh, produce your own and release your own endogenous opioids. So these are opioids, but they're not – External opioids, they're your own opioids. And most people have heard of endorphins. That's an opioid. In this case, it's releasing probably what's called an enkephalin, which is another kind of opioid. But But you made it. It's you. You made it. It's you. And it's very specific to the pain pathways. So uh, unlike if you take a pill and it's in your blood, and it's you know crosses into your brain, uh, you know it's everywhere. So it's affecting yes, it's affecting your pain centers by all means, but it's also affecting your emotional centers and your, you know the centers that are, are involved with addiction, and it's affecting your your gut, and, and so you're causing all kinds of you know secondary effects outside of pain. By stimulation, you're getting a very precise kind of down regulation of pain perception through your own endogenous mechanisms. So that's what Quell does. Um, what's it also does is important. It, it, could we realized early on? You know, it, it's you want to collect data. You, you want you want to understand how the device is being used and the outcomes. Uh, and by this I mean objective outcomes like how people are sleeping and how they're active, and it records that. And then via the app, there's a companion app. You can tell it your pain levels, um, psychological burden of pain that you're experiencing, and your demographics, and all this data we've been collecting for now approaching four years, um, and all this data is aggregated in the cloud to the point where we now have the largest, we believe, at least one of the largest chronic pain databases in the world, uh, with hundreds of thousands of data points on many, many people with chronic pain. So, um, you know, historically, we've used this data as kind of as a, as a tracking mechanism for, for the people so they can see, for the users, so they can see, okay, yes, my sleep has gone better, my activity levels have gone up, my pain has gone down, it's good positive feedback what we had always hoped to do is to get a large enough database and then we could apply. And as we talked earlier, it's, it's, I was called a buzzword, but it's AI. um, But technically it's machine learning, which is a subset of AI to start to extract um, really pertinent patterns out of this large data. What can we learn from this data? Exactly. And what that means is when you, a new user of Quell starts using the product now, uh, and this is incorporated into the the SQL, the Quell 2.0, you're not, It's not starting from scratch. It looks at your demographics and it looks at your pain conditions, where you experience pain. Do you have fibromyalgia? Do you have back pain? Do you have it in your upper body, lower body, et cetera, et cetera? How long have you had it? Um, What is your psychological profile? Because that's a major impact. And, and, And then some other physiological measurements. And from that, it can say, okay. Here's how you should, you should use the product. Is, is it, we can, so out of the box, we can, we can be much more effective so you don't have to go through this kind of trial and error process, which a lot of people will fail at because they, they don't get relief quickly. They will give up. In addition to that, the, the Quell 2.0, another very important feature of that is it's half the size of the original Quell, uh, which is really crucial because, and this was some of the strongest feedback we got, if you're wearing something on your body, almost continuously or at least half the day, if not the full day, the size of the device.
0: And what was it, about two inches by three yeah. inches? Uh, yeah,
4: yeah, it was about two inches by three inches. Now it's got the footprint smaller than a credit card. Um, so it really was a 50% reduction or uh, in, in the area. And it feels more substantive than that even because um, – when you, now you almost don't feel it, and you can, you know, if you're sleeping with a device and you roll over, you don't, it doesn't, it doesn't obstruct your sleep. So that was a really important, uh, but very difficult uh, innovation for us to get that kind of battery power technology and, and all that, all the, the elements into a form factor that was half the size. So we're very excited about it. You know, the ultimate, the core technology of neural stimulation is the same. So it's, clinically, it's it's the same tool. Only we think we've made it better uh, for for more people.
0: Does it work for everybody?
4: I wish it did. It does not. Um, and there's, you know, our clinical data, uh, which we have quite a bit now, a lot more than when we first talked. We've had you know, a number of studies published. It's somewhere between probably seven and eight out of 10. You know, I'd say probably seven out of 10 people that works. Um, we've now been able to to identify, you know, the subsets of people more, more, more accurately that doesn't work for us. So, for example, migraine is not a good indication. But at the end of the day, um, you really have to try it. Um, and uh, the way we, we manage that, we don't want to have somebody buy a product that they can't use. We we have a 60-day trial period, if you will, a money-back guarantee. So you do your own little clinical trial. You try for 60 days. If it doesn't help you in 60 days, it's not going to help you. Um, on the other hand, in 60 days, you ought to pretty well determine if it's beneficial, in which case I think it could be, it's, you know, it could be a pretty significant benefit in your life. So... We, we manage that doesn't work in any, everybody's everybody you know situation by by having that, that trial period.
0: One thing that has always been important for me about how this came together is usually this is going to take like four or five different people coming from many different places because there's so much to solve, so much to see. But as I mentioned earlier, your Ph.D. is in neurobiology from UC Berkeley. You're also an M.D. from Harvard Medical School. You also have a master's in computer science so you can program all this stuff and know what what that can and can't do. <laughs> so you're like a virtual team in one person. And shy. <laughs> I know yeah. it takes a lot of people to do it, yeah. but all of those places, all of those various, um, we'll say disciplines, they all have a different perspective on how they see things. So bringing those together, I would imagine, helps in trying to move this forward. Um,
4: yes, yeah, so I, I really have. A, we have an incredible team uh, of, of uh, engineers and and um, you know scientists and. More broadly, the entire company. So it, it really is—it's a team effort. It's not an individual's effort. But um, you know, it—it it, it really is the integration of um, neurophysiology, biomedical engineering, um, electronic design, and then increasingly now, sort of digital health, which is you know very important, which is apps and cloud-based and data science, and and I think that's what's exciting about the time we're in, and it's reflected in you know in in in, in, the, in the meeting here. Which is, you know, the integration of technologies. But formerly, were pretty disparate technologies that weren't always well integrated. Are, are now increasingly, you know, being uh, combined in ways that I think have, you know, tremendous hope. Uh, create tremendous Hope. And so um, it's very satisfying to be um, not too old <laughs> to be able to contribute. Uh, you know, probably, you know. There's so, a
0: breath in your body. You'll yeah, be contributing. Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly.
4: So um, I've um, I always, my interest was always in, in bringing sophisticated uh, electrical engineering, computer science in physiology into medicine. And I've been very fortunate in having uh, the opportunity to do that for the last several decades.
0: Now, is this something that is over the counter, or are you working with physicians or physical therapists? What are you who are you working with?
4: So, its primary mode of distribution is it's um, over the counter. It's, it's available on our website. It's available on Amazon.com, and and it also is available at CVS. So, those are kind of our primary sources. We are very active clinically, so we, we go and we present data at all the cl- at the uh, pain medicine meetings um, pretty regularly. Uh, we publish in the peer reviewed uh, journals. Uh, And that's kind of our path. And and we're exclusively focused on the U.S. Um, So our product, coil is only available in the United States. Uh, We actually signed an agreement earlier in, well, beginning of 2018, so about a year ago, with GlaxoSmithKline, uh, GSK. And GSK, which is now going to be the largest consumer health company in the world because they're merging with Pfizer's consumer business, um, and they have pain products, you know, in uh, broadly Excedrin, Advil uh, from Pfizer, and then, and then Premier products outside the U.S. will have the technology outside the U.S. So internationally, it will be available under GSK. In the U.S., it'll be available under Quell.
0: Well, uh, it's it's a pleasure to see you again, Shy. Please come back. Don't be shy.
4: I hope, hopefully it's not another two to three years. But uh, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Always nice.
0: Dr. Shai Ghazani is the president and CEO of Neurometrics. More information is available at neurometrics.com. That's Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, Metrics, M-E-T-R-I-X, neurometrics.com. From the Consumer Electronics Show, CES 2019 in Las Vegas, Nevada, for Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
1: TechNation Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancorne.